Hello, good morning, uh, Castleton Community Church. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, as Pastor Tommy mentioned, since we are in our Advent, um, we will continue with the theme of rejoicing. And so if you have your Bibles, please open up to Philippians uh, 4.4, and I will read for us our scripture reading today. Again, that is Philippians 4.4 will be our scripture reading this morning. And God's word says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Please join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the ability to be here. Thank you, God, for the ways that you have watched over the Johnsons uh, this week and that you have been sweet to them. And I pray, Lord, that as we go through our text today that you would um, lift us up. Would you encourage us to see what is in your text? And would you um, help us to become a people, God, that is always rejoicing? We ask this, Father, in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are like me, there's probably been a time where maybe you're watching a professional game, let's say basketball, or maybe you're watching the Olympics where you've watched somebody, and the thought has gone through your mind, how does that person do that? How does, I don't even want to say his name, how does LeBron James, <laughs> I know it's hard, how does LeBron go through do a 360, hurt our precious pacers, and do that to us. How does he do that? How does somebody in the Olympics, especially in the winter, go down that sled at 90 miles an hour and then just get up as if nothing has just happened? Um, I, I had this experience, um, in fact, this summer. Me and my friends decided it would be a great idea to go to Zion National Park. We did that this summer. There's only a problem with that is that instead of flying as normal, sane people do, we decided to drive. 21 hours, I think 23 hours because I have a small bladder. So 23 hours, driving, stopping, driving, stopping. We finally get there, okay? Now, we get there to Zion National Park. If you've not gotten there, the lines are very long. So we get there. We get up at like 3 in the morning. I'm thinking, why have we decided to do this? This was a mistake. But we have been told it is going to be worth it. So we get to Design National Park, and I got my camel back. I got my, my water bottle, and I'm excited. And then you, we go to get our tickets, and then we're, we find out that the, that the Lord in his kindness has blessed us with a perfect day, perfect day of 114 degrees outside. And I'm thinking to myself, this was not a good idea. So word of the wise, if you are going to go to Zion National Park, go like in the winter. Uh, don't go in the middle of the summer. So we decide we're going to do Angel's Landing if you've not been there. It's amazing. It's, I think the whole thing is about four and a half hours. There was no way we were going to do that, but we did a little bit of it. So some of our friends kind of went on ahead of us because apparently we were going too slow. And me and my friend Chris, we marshaled it out. I had my timer in every minute to minute and a half. I'd say, Chris, we got to stop. I can't breathe. I'm about to pass out. So we'd stop and there'd be people. It's I want to imagine the elevation, imagine like the Stairmaster on like 300. Um, so we're walking and we're stopping and people are healed over. And like as we're getting closer and closer to kind of like towards the, the, the teardrop of it, we're asking people how much farther, how much farther go. Oh, 20 more minutes, 30 more minutes. No, it's like more hours, okay? And finally, we're walking, I don't know what to do. And then we get to the top, me and Chris are there. And all of a sudden, I hear this round of applause. Our friends are clapping for us. Didn't think we were going to make it. I was like, wow, come on. Um, but then, like, 
right at the top, if you were going to do the rest of it, there's, there's like a resting pad to where you can relax and take pictures. And we get up there and we see this thing that is just amazing. We see this 65-year-old woman standing there, unscathed, in her hat, looking all nice, giving people waters, telling them where to go. I'm like collapsed. I'm like, man, let's take, let's take a break. And she's poised. She's okay. She's not gasping. Here I am, 28. She's 65, just like, how are you doing? And I'm like, horrible. And I, I sat there, and, and it, um, one of my friends had asked, and it turned out that she and I think her husband had done this trail every weekend for the past couple of years. And it's amazing, right? Like I'm sitting there, and I'm like, how is she able to do this? And I think in, in such a similar way, when we talk about rejoicing always in the Lord, I think sometimes we look at rejoicing like that. Like here's the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle. How was he able to do this? We look at it with all the things that we're going through in a year like 2021, and we're, we're tired, and we're gasping, and we can't breathe, and we look at Paul, and he looks like he's fine. And, and really what Paul wants to do this morning is he wants to be our tour guide. He who has had to walk up and down the travails of life wants to lead you and I, to a place where we can understand just a little bit more this morning of what it would actually look like to rejoice always in the midst of all that we go through. And so today, Paul will be our guide. And we're not just going to be in the book of Philippians. We're going to be kind of in and out of some of Paul's um, epistles as we go throughout our text today. So we have two, two points today as we'll go through learning how to always rejoice. The first point will be our reason for always rejoicing. Our reason for always rejoicing. And secondly, our second point will be the battle for always rejoicing. The battle for always rejoicing. So as we enter into the book of Philippians, since obviously a little bit different than Luke, I just want to kind of catch you up to where we're at in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing to this church. They have helped him in his missionary journey. We see in Philippians 4 that Paul records that they have sent him help time and time again. So they have have helped him even when others have not. And Paul writes in that we find out that in fact in Philippians 1, Paul has been imprisoned. In fact, as Paul continues to go through Philippians 1, we see that in fact he may die and, and we don't know what's going to happen. And yet here is Paul in a Roman prison. And where we would expect him to be griping, to be complaining, to be talking about where he's at, we find that this is in fact many people say is the happiest book in the New Testament. And we ask how, how was Paul able to do this? And Paul wants to write to the Philippians, even in the midst of his imprisonment, even in the midst of all that he's gone through. And Paul has the audacity to say, I want to encourage you. I want to tell you I'm fine. And Paul wants to help the Philippians and help us today to realize how we, just like Paul, can have the joy that is just spilling out of Paul throughout the book of Philippians. So we start in Philippians 3. Before Paul tells us how he is rejoicing, he first has to combat some opponents. Just similarly in the book in Galatians, Paul is writing against opponents of the gospel. These opponents, we call these Judaizers, are people who are saying that the Philippians need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing against them, right? Here are the Philippian believers, and if, if they actually think circumcision can save, then Christ will be of no value. So Paul, in order to talk about the glory of the gospel, first has to kind of defend himself and kind of show that these opponents who are bragging, as Paul says in Philippians 3, who have confidence, confidence in the flesh, 
that really there's, there's no comparison. If I can return, it's, it's like silly when we have this conversation of uh, like who's better, Michael or, Michael or LeBron. It's not even a conversation. So we have the Michael Jordan, Paul, speaking against these naysayers and showing that there's not even a competition. Uh-oh, <laughs> preaching. So, so what does Paul do? Paul goes against these opponents and says that all the things that they're boasting and all the things that maybe perhaps the, the Gentile Christians would want to find security. And Paul says, I've done everything that they've done and some. I've got the hat. I've got the t-shirt. What they are saying is nothing. So what does Paul do? Paul first says that he's of the tribe of Benjamin in Philippians 3 verses 4 through 6. Now to, to you and I, we're like, okay, you're from the tribe of Benjamin. But it was from the tribe of Benjamin that the first King Saul came from. So what Paul is doing is he's showing us where he comes from to show that his apostolic ministry should be trusted, that they're bragging about where they come from. And Paul says, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul, Paul goes on to also say that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. So all of the things that these Gentile Christians would be tempted to, to follow, Paul says, I've done all of these things and I've done it more. Paul says, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My lineage goes all the way back. It's Jewish. There's no mix in there. And so what Paul is doing is he's showing off who he is. Not only this, but Paul says he is a Pharisee. I don't know about you, but um, I, I didn't grow up doing Awana, but kind of in Awana, you would do this thing where you'd memorize Bible verses. And Paul kind of puts the Awana to shame. You want to know how? It was known that little Hebrew boys would have the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament memorized by age 12. So I don't know how many Awana stars that is, but I think that's a lot. And so what Paul does is he says, oh, these opponents, oh, they know their word. Well, guess what? I, got, I have the Pentateuch memorized. Oh, and the whole thing, the 612 um, Jewish laws, uh, dietary and um, ways that distinguish us from Gentiles, according to the law, I'm faultless. So what's, what, what's Paul doing? Paul is showing us that he, have all, he has all of the prestige that people in the day would have looked and said, wow. And Paul is saying, it's nothing to me. Paul, like so many today, want to climb the ladder in society who want to appear that they're on top, maybe because of their family background, maybe because of their status, their skills. One would look at Paul and say, man. And Paul lists all the advantages that he gave up. He gave up being a well-known Pharisee and being respected in his Jewish community. Paul gave up um, his physical safety as we see um, he was not only physically had physical sufferings, but also emotional ones as well. His contemporaries, as we will see throughout his later epistles, mocked him and tried to discredit Paul. Paul's life could have been an easy coast ride being a Pharisee and being well-known, and yet Paul says, to lose all of that, to lose all of my status, to lose everything that anybody would have looked at and would have wanted, Paul says, for me to lose all of that, I look at it and say, it couldn't be nonetheless important to me. Why? How? And now with Paul discrediting these opponents, now Paul wants to give us the reason why. Now he says in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, Paul says, whatever things I had in my old life of, of being a Jew, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that as me, for him, when he met Jesus, Jesus changed everything. Jesus became his reason for living. See, the world says, build yourself up. Go to a really, really good school. Get a really, really good job. That's where your significance is found. That's where your status is found. That's where your joy is found. As Paul's saying, yeah, I used to think like that. And then I met Jesus. And he changed that. All the things in my previous life that I looked at, that's where my joy is found. That's where my joy is found. Paul's saying, I met Christ and Christ undid all of that. So now for Paul, it's no longer anything that he has done that is his joy, but now it's Jesus. He says, I know him. He says, knowing Jesus is far better than being a Pharisee. Knowing Jesus is better than being regarded high in society. Knowing Jesus now he's my life. He's my foundation. He's what gets me up in the morning. He's my, he's my cup of coffee that spurs me up out of bed. When people are talking about politics and this, and I'm happy about this, Paul's saying, yeah, scratch all that. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul says it's not only knowing him, but it's knowing what he's done for me. Then in the personal work of Christ, as we see all throughout the Gospels, Jesus isn't going to the religious elite, but he's going to the outcasts. He's going to the prostitutes, and he is saying, if you would believe upon me, I will make you new. And Paul recognizes the joy of what it is to be known by his Savior, that all the sins that Paul has done in his life, that Jesus of Nazareth came to die for him. And so Paul says, now I have a reason to rejoice. It's now no longer anything that I've done. As these opponents would say, oh, look at all that you can do. No, now that Jesus is in the picture, now Paul says, now I just look at him. Now I have a reason. I have an everlasting reason because my Savior has saved me. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything that he's done. So Paul says, I have a reason to rejoice. I'm in shackles and I couldn't be happier. I may be condemned to die and I couldn't be more safe. Why? Is it because Paul's a super Christian? No. It's because he's getting his strength and his power from the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, as we enter into this Advent season, what's the reason for your joy this morning? Is it where you come from? Is it the fact that your name is a Smith? You're a Jordan? You're an Alexander? Is it because that you have a great and massive intellect and when anybody bumps into you, man, they are just blessed to know you? Is your joy found in your position, like in your resume? Like if we saw your resume, we'd say, wow, like is that where your, your joy is found in? Paul says, for the Christian, it is to look at Christ and to see everything else as a loss. Not that things don't matter, but that for the Christian, we now have a new reason to rejoice. We, know how, we now have a new reason for why there can always be joy in our hearts. How good is it this morning, church, that as many of us come in in this Advent season, that we have a reason to rejoice. As, as that song says, O Holy Night, a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. 
with all that we've gone through in 2021, our reason, our, our life raft, the thing that is keeping us up is that our position in Christ hasn't changed. That I'm going to leave here today a son of God, that you're going to walk out of here if you are in Christ, that you are a son or daughter, and that you can know him and that he knows you. That is your reason amongst all that we go through. And so it is this morning that Paul tells us, that's my reason. That's, that's the reason that Paul, in shackles, in Philippians 1, saying, I don't know whether I should die or whether to live. I don't know. Paul can say, kill me, stone me, do whatever you must. But the gospel is going forth. The gospel and the gospel alone is Paul's reason. So he has now given us our reason why today, right now at 1146, we can rejoice. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done. And so now this leads us into our battle for rejoicing, our battle for always rejoicing. And now we will unfortunately meet our two foes that seem to um, bump into us, which is suffering and unmet expectations. And yet if you're like me, you're, you're, you're hearing, you know Philippians 4.4, you understand the English, you understand all what that verse is saying, and yet if you're like me, you're saying, yeah, but Paul, do you really know what you're talking about? Do you actually know what it's like to be a Christian in 2021 with all that's going on? And I think we can actually ask the question, does Paul actually know what he's talking about? If you're like me, have you ever taken advice or listened, from some, listened to somebody who had no idea what they were talking about? Like absolutely no idea. Like you listen and you're like, why did I listen to that guy? He had no idea and suffered the consequences. I had that similar experience with my beloved sister. Now, again, before I, before I ruin her name, she's a lovely person. She's a nurse. Love her to death. We're cool. But my sister one time gave me some pretty bad advice that I thought I should not have listened to her. Graduated um, from Purdue University 2015. Boiler up. If you go to IU, we'll pray for you after the service. <laughs> Tom, Tommy can pray for you. But um, when I graduated, I told my mom, I said, Mom, I want a dog. I don't want a small dog. I don't want a medium-sized dog. I want a real big dog. So we got a German Shepherd. I went to Craigslist, as all good people do. Searched, found a farm, got him. Only problem was that Sam had fleas and so went to the vet, said, hey, what do we need to do in order to kind of de-flea him and get rid of the fleas? And they said, you just need to wash him with soap in all areas of his body. I'm like, okay, simple enough. So we get Sam, we get him in the tub. His name is Samson, the German Shepherd. He's a puppy and we're washing him. And here's where logic would have told you, don't listen to what Sarah's about to say, but me being the older brother and thinking she's a nurse, she knows better, I listen. It comes to his face, okay? And she says, I need you to rub soap around and in his eyes. Now, I'm thinking, that, that doesn't make sense. I'm no doctor. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. But that doesn't sound right. And she's convincing. She's like, Matt, just do it. I promise this is good. This is, this is what we needed. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. But me, she knows, okay, I do it, okay. Two days later, my mom calls me and she says, Matt, I think something's wrong with your dog. I'm like, why? What's wrong? She's like, he is bumping into walls. He can't see. I'm like, oh, so I rush home and sure enough, here he is bumping his nose, can't walk. His eyes are, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Take him to the vet. The vet's like, yeah, he has a film of soap around his eyes. I don't know if he's ever going to see again. I'm thinking, man, is my sister going to make it through this because uh, we're, we're about to butt heads. Luckily, by God's grace, I gave him my drops and he's fine today. But I remember thinking to myself, why did I listen to Sarah? 
Why did I listen in all of her wiseness? And we're great friends, but why did I listen to her? And I think similarly, in a way, we can think the Apostle Paul has no idea what he's talking about. But yet in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul grounds himself and we look at the resume of Paul's life and we see he actually does know what he's talking about. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord always as just like a happy skipper, like life, like every day is a Friday. No, Paul says to rejoice always with the pain and brokenness and understanding of the lives that you and I live. Listen to Paul's life. Paul says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Five different times Paul was taken to a pole and whipped 39 times. Flesh falling off. I'm sure if you saw his back, he did not look the same. Five different times whipped repeatedly. Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Normally you don't make it out of stoning, but somehow, by God's grace, Paul made it out of that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Man, Paul, that's a life. In toil and hardship, though many a sleepless a night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on my anxiety for all the churches. I'm just going to go ahead and reason to say that Paul had a hard life. And yet Paul could not be more joyful. Paul could yet not say, brothers and sisters, there is a reason to rejoice. And so it is where our first flow of suffering meets us, as so did it meet Paul. We have this foe of suffering when it meets us in unexpected sickness, death of a family member, as some of us have experienced over this COVID year, internal family, strife or problems with loved ones. It seems that when we have the joy of the Lord before us, that suffering seems to hit us in the stomach and the joy of the Lord just seems to spill out. And so we ask this question. Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord. Always again I say rejoice. And we say, yeah, but Paul, how can we do that in the midst of the sadness and the brokenness and the turmoil in our hearts? And Paul says two what seems contradictory things and he puts them together in a verse. When he writes to the Corinthians and he says, that's sorrowful. I'm sorrowful. For the life, I'm sorrowful for the pain I've gone through. I'm sorrowful for my brothers and sisters, as he says in Romans 9. I'm sorrowful for the way that sin has marred the creation and all that I've gone through. He says, I'm sorrowful. I look suffering in the face and I see it. I acknowledge it. But he says, yet, always rejoicing. Always rejoicing. So Paul says we can be broken in the midst of the pain, in the midst of all the things that so get at us, in the ways that our hearts break, at the ways when that alarm goes off and the pains of yesterday are still in our hearts. And Paul says you can be sorrowful and you can rejoice at the same time. And he brings these two seemingly opposite things together. Paul says I have a reason for you to rejoice. So suffering comes and Paul says, brothers and sisters, there's a reason to rejoice. He says in Romans 5.3, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
He says, you can do this. You can rejoice. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If you're an unbeliever today in here and you suffer, there's no reason to your suffering. It's pointless. It's meaningless. As Richard Dawkins says, there's no point to life. But for the believer, God is working in the midst of our sufferings to produce hope. That when we suffer, when the, when the creation mars against us, when we feel the pains of this broken world, Paul says what the gospel does is it gets our heads to look up. It can be so easy to be comfortable in, in a world of Netflix, in a world of HBO, in a world of all-you-can-eat pizza, in, in a world of comfy couches. This world can become so comfortable and we can say, mm, maybe creation's not so bad. And what suffering does is it kind of just splits that thing in half and says, no, 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 no. And what suffering does is it gets our heads from looking horizontal for, there's my joy, there's my joy, there's my joy, there's my joy. And what Paul says is that suffering makes us look upward. And it makes us keep our eyes on the Lord. And Paul says, you can rejoice in your sufferings, not because you're suffering, but because it points us upward towards our hope. Paul tells us that the new heavens and the new earth that were Adam and Eve failed, where they came in and messed this whole thing up for every one of us. Paul says that in the gospel, in, in the end of the book in Revelation, we have a hope that, that tears are going to be eradicated with, that, every, that, that disease is going to be away with. And so Paul says, for us struggling to rejoice, wondering where to rejoice, Paul says that suffering through the lens of the gospel, gets our heads to look upward. That's what God is doing. That's why we can rejoice. A second reason Paul gives us is that in the fact that God doesn't waste our sufferings, he doesn't only waste it in our own lives, but he doesn't waste it on one another. You come from a broken home, and you meet another brother or sister who comes from a broken home, and you have this bond to say, wait, I didn't grow up with this, and you didn't grow up with that, and I feel this, and you feel that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, as C.S. Lewis said, friendship is formed when one person says, wait, you too? I thought I the only one. That in the midst of our sufferings, God takes these horrible things at times that mars us, and yet when I meet other brothers and sisters in Christ and I say, wait, you've suffered with that? Wait, you've had that thought? Wait, you've had doubts like that? Wait a minute, I'm not crazy. I actually have, I can actually go. And so what, he, what, what Paul grounds this in 2 Corinthians 1.4 when he says that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what Paul does is he redeems suffering. Paul says, I'm in chains. He's not in a beach cabana flipping through saying life is great. No, Paul may die. But Paul says, look at how God is redeeming my suffering. Look at brothers and sisters how Paul, how God in the midst of your lives is redeeming suffering to produce character which produces hope. Only the gospel can do this. Only the gospel in the midst of the darkest night of our souls can lift us up and God can say, I'm producing hope in you. And so as Paul shows our sufferings are not meaningless. He's producing hope in us, and he's producing for hope in us in, in others as well. With all this talk of, of battle, it makes me think of drummer boys. 
Do you know what the role of drummer boys were in the war? Drummer boys were sent out to, to beat to a specific rhythm. And it was by that rhythm that soldiers were able to load and reload their guns and then also was able, as soldiers are fighting, as men are dying, as the cause is going out, wondering, are we going to get through this? Are we going to be able to continue? It was through the soldiers hearing the drum beating that it raised their morale. And similarly, that is what the gospel is. As we go out into our lives, as we're walking this painful, suffering creation that is marred by suffering, what Paul is saying is that the gospel is our drum that's keeping us going, that's helping us continue to fight, helping us to continue to pray, helping us to raise our morale to do this thing called the Christian life. And so it is that you may be wondering, okay, rejoicing God's redeemed it, but Matt, what's it actually look like? What's it look like? Boots on the ground. What does suffering, what does rejoicing in our suffering actually look like? And Paul shows us in Philippians 4. He models it for us. Notice how in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, he not only tells us to rejoice always, but he shows us what? That we should always be laying our anxieties before the Lord in prayer. That we should be praying to our God, not taking our anxieties inward and trying to figure it out internally in our heart. But what does Paul do? Paul rejoices, he prays, and he worships. So you're sitting in here right now thinking, what does it actually look like to rejoice always? And Paul would say, it looks like even in the midst of whatever you are in that you're worshiping. And when our worship team comes up here and we worship together, that you are actively rejoicing in the Lord. That's what it looks like to pray, to go to God and to say, God, here's, here's where I'm at. Here's what's going on. Here are the things that are making my heart be in turmoil. That's what it looks like to rejoice and to be thankful. Wait a minute. God, you're still on the throne. The book of Lamentations tells me that your, your mercies never come to an end. It is thanking God in the most impossible of situations, thanking him, praising him, and remembering all of his benefits. As one of my friends told me, this is going to take some time. Uh, one, one of my friends told me that, you know, it takes an apple tree five to ten years to reap fruit, not two days not two months, not a year, not two, but five to ten years. And I think we'd be crushed if out of this message we walked out and said, I'm just going to rejoice, I'm just going to do this. No, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time to learn how in the midst of our hearts being crushed, how to look upward, how to look at Jesus, how to continue in this race, how to consider him who endured much from sinners as, as the book of Hebrews. It's going to take some time, but guess what? We're not alone. We're not alone. We must remember in the midst of our battle, Jesus, the one who died for us, that he's helping us. He's walking with us. He's sustaining us. He's right there with us. As we just sang, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's helping us to rejoice in the Lord always. And so it is, Paul has given us our reason for rejoicing. It's the gospel. It's in knowing him. It's, 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 not, it, it's not like some foreign um, politician who like goes on my behalf. I get to talk to this man. I get to talk to Jesus. And the Bible says that he is living to make intercession for us. So Paul has given us our reason for rejoicing. It's the gospel that I, me, you, a sinner, gets to know the Almighty. 
And it is now where we meet our, our second foe of unmet expectations. If you're like me, unmet expectations are not fun, right? I, I, when I think of unmet expectations, I think of my little brother, Jimmy. It is with Jimmy. He's uh, five years old, and we have the, uh, I'm not so much raising him, but I get to be his big brother. And so one of the things I found out as a big brother when you have a little brother who's five is he likes to watch things that normally I would not watch on my own. I'm talking, of course, about the infamous, amazing PJ Mask. And, man, like you can watch that show for ten minutes, and you're like, okay. And see, they're going, and see, they got the mask, they're doing it. But after about an hour, you go a little crazy. You're like, am I still a human? Like, what is this? Like, kids are running around, they're zipping, and you're like, I got to turn this off. And it's funny, as soon as I reach for that Netflix remote, I'm like, Jimmy, we're going to stop. He gives me the, hmm, gives me his little temper tantrum, and he goes off, and he storms off. And what is amazing is that as Jimmy is his little, you know what, like two feet walking, he's showing you and I something fundamental about all of us is that when we have unmet expectations, we don't want them to be interrupted. When we have an expectation, we want them to be met. So when this foe, we're battling against suffering, the gospel is reigning in our hearts, but then we gotta be careful for this next foe, which is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations of, I'm married, and it's, it's not everything that I thought it was gonna be. I thought this was going to be the new heavens and the new earth, and it's great, but it's not everything that I thought it was going to be. Unmet expectations of marriage bliss. Unmet expectations of fulfillment in life. I thought my life by now would be here, and I thought I'd be working here, and I thought I'd be making this much, or I thought I'd be living here, and I'm not living there, and this unmet expectations comes at us. Or for others, I thought by now I'd be married. I thought by now I'd have a, a wife or a husband and we'd be just skipping on into eternity and we'd have some little kids and we'd be checking them into children's ministry and people would be asking and that's not my story and I've, I have these expectations of how I thought life was going to go and it's not going that way and Paul's saying rejoice and oh, I don't really want to because my life is not turned out in the way that I thought it was going to. Even Paul had unmet expectations. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. All the people he's raised up, all the people he's encouraged, all the people he's listened to probably preached at their funerals. And here is Paul now in 2 Timothy about to be poured out as a drink offering. He's saying, nobody came for me. I thought somebody would be and nobody came for me. So what do we do with unmet expectations? How do we go before our brothers and sisters with unmet expectations. That's why we need one another to pray through these unmet expectations, to grieve through these unmet expectations, to, to come along others and to say, I need help because I thought life was going to go this way and it's not going that way. And I need, I need your help that I can look upward and that the gospel is my joy. I need help, brother, sister, because I have a plan for my life. I thought every day was going to be a Friday. I thought life was going to go this way. It's not going that way. And I need help because my heart has a plan and God is undoing that plan. And brothers and sisters, it is in these unmet expectations that it makes me think of the book of Job. What was Satan trying to do in the book of Job? Here he comes before God. God says, have you considered Job? And what Satan is trying to do to Job is saying, give Job enough suffering. Give Job enough unmet expectations, and he will curse God, and then he will die. 
So in our battle, as the gospel being the thing that is keeping us going, our enemy, our adversary, our general is thinking, if I can give these Christians enough suffering and enough unmet expectations, their life doesn't go how they will, God, they will curse you and then they will no longer be with you. That is our battle. That we have a general thinking, just if I can just turn up the suffering a little bit, if I can just turn up the sense that life is mundane and it's not what they want, maybe if I can make their life dull enough, maybe, just maybe, they won't rejoice anymore. And Paul would say, remember, remember the gospel, remember Christ, remember that he knows you and you know him and that he's for you. That was not the fact of unmet expectations, the root cause of the garden. God gives Adam a wife when he doesn't even know what to ask for. And now here comes the deceiver saying, I mean, God's given you a tree. He's given you a, a place to live in, but God has withheld. Maybe you should go for something. And so perhaps we can get through suffering, right? But this whole battle of unmet expectations, this is the one that we need to be praying through. This is the one that we really need the gospel to be in our hearts because if we are not careful, we will be like our forefathers, Adam and Eve. God giving us the world and saying, yeah, but you've not given me that thing. You've not given me that thing that I've asked for. And brothers and sisters, we have to look up. We have to remember him. We have to be meeting with one another. When I think of these, these two enemies of unmet expectations and suffering, I can think of no one better than Horatio G. Spafford. Horatio G. Spafford, you may not know the name, but you, you quickly will um, be familiar with him. It was in the Chicago fire of 1871 where Horatio lost everything. And so to kind of give his family a break, he decided, I'm going to send my wife and our four daughters over to England. And as Horatio, Horatio's wife and, and four daughters go out, there's a shipwreck. And Horatio's wife loses all of their daughters. Horatio's wife writes back and says, we've lost our daughters. What shall I do? So Horatio gets on a ship and the captain of the ship hears that um, what has happened to Horatio and, and, and tells him that we're about to pass by the spot where you lost your daughters. And it is at that very moment where Horatio writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Here it is, suffering, unmet expectations, and Horatio because the gospel has become his reason. To the world standards, Horatio's life is over. But for Horatio, weeping, suffering, though it may tarry, he says, I have a joy. I have a joy even in the midst of my darkest night, even in the midst of losing my daughters, even in the midst of the terrible heartache. And so brothers, brothers and sisters, let me close with these three things that we need to win this battle of always rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. As is one of our core values here of 11 community, Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another as long as it is called today. Man, I can't tell you how comforting it has been at times when one of my brothers or sisters has called um, and I'm just going throughout my day, I'm working, I'm getting stuff done and I, I hear, hey man, just wanted to call, just check in to see how you're doing. 
I'm like, man, that, like, my, 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 my cup has been filled a little bit. Someone says, hey, man, I just I see God working in you like that, like to encourage one another. I think in 2021, I don't think we've outdone encouraging one another. So I don't think we're in any room to like overdo that one. I think we can go ahead and listen to that command, maybe encourage just a little more, maybe say, hey, brother, sister, I see God at work. Or man, remember you were here, but now look, you're here, man, I see God at work. We need encouragement because we're kind of like bags of sand with a hole in it. We're forever losing encouragement and we need the gospel and people in the church to encourage one another. So first we need one another. Secondly, oh, how we need the work of the Spirit. If you walk out of here and think, I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm gonna go memorize Philippians 4.4, I'm gonna do it in the Greek, I may even do it in the Latin. And you forget the work of the Holy Spirit, you can characterize almost the whole book of Philippians as the outward working of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not some super apostle. Paul was just a normal man who God had taken and he had used mightily. But the same spirit that was in the Apostle Paul as he wrote the book of Romans, as he wrote the book of Philippians, is in you and in I, is in you and it's in I. So brothers and sisters, we need the work of the spirit to help us. As the psalmist says, bless the Lord, oh my soul, forget not all his benefits. We need the spirit. It is at your understanding that you can't do this on your own. You are unable. The gospel tells you. You couldn't pay for your own sins. And what God is commanding for us today, you can't do without the work of the Spirit. And third, we need perhaps one of our most important um, core values is the supremacy of Jesus. You know, when you, um, if you've been to a really, really nice fancy home, you know, you see that dimmer. And they go, ooh, and you're going to watch a movie. And you're like, wow, that's, that's nice. Wow, they're really living upscale. The gospel is to be a dimmer in our life, that as we get to know Christ more and more, and as he shines, that the world becomes lost. Not to say we can't have desires, not to say we can't have hopes, but that Christ and Christ alone, as he continues to increase in intensity and gets brighter and brighter and brighter, I can't see the things that the world offers. I can't see so much my unmet expectations because Jesus is becoming my center. He's becoming my joy. He and not the world's levels of success are becoming the reason why I'm joyful. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are here today and you do not belong to Christ, I would, I, would, I would just advise you to raise up your white flag and surrender. There is no joy, no position in life, no super family that can overshine the beauty of what it is to know Christ personally, as Horatio did. And so brothers and sisters, if that's not your story, I just ask you, raise up your flag, surrender, and come to Christ. So brothers and sisters, we have our marching orders from Paul and from our Savior. And so brothers and sisters, as we must daily rise from our beds and have Jesus beating the drum into our lives to raise us, encouraging us to help us to fight, to continue, to go. Let our motto always be and forever let it be to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for the gospel that it is the good news that outshines all of the foes that we face. Lord, would you help us to remember that we need only to rely on you and on others that you've given, brothers and sisters in the church, to do this seemingly impossible thing, which is to rejoice always.
Father, be with us in this holiday season. While there is so much to rejoice about, Father, there is so much that breaks us. I thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is our always and reigning reason of why we can rejoice always. Be with us now as we um, soon partake and help us, Lord, as we rejoice in your son's name. We ask this in your son's name we pray. Amen.